It is a it is a great day. It's a Sabbath day of rest, and yet as we get into um, as we get into thinking about reflecting back during the week, think about think about what happened this week for you. To go back Saturday, what was going through your life on Saturday and Friday and Thursday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Monday. That's what just a week ago we were at the Guardians game. It was fast. And yet, so life is just chocked full of all this stuff, isn't it? Everybody's busy and good things and hard things. Um, yesterday at the Kairos uh, team formation, I was just reminded of, again, how God is a work in every individual's lives. And, and something, uh, one of the guys I never met, uh, I was telling Sandy about this, that the reason why I go to Kairos is not because I need the training, because I could, I, I, it's almost memorized. It's, it's pretty <clears throat> uh, prescripted. But it's the relationships and the stories of these guys. And yesterday I met a guy that uh, you just fall in love with. And uh, as I met with him, I said, and I don't know about you guys, but it's sometimes hard to start friendships and hard to start talking with people, hard to start the spiritual talk. Love is true until until you start to ask questions and listen, listen, love, love. And so I turned to my new friend, my new brother, I'd never met him before, and I said, can you tell me when you started, um, when you started seriously following Christ, when you became converted, I didn't use that word, but when you turned and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready, I'm sincere, how old were you? He said, 56 years old. And he said such, he answered with such a gentleness and a brokenness. I thought, there's a lot behind the story. I said, 56. Was that just last year? He says, no, it was 14. I'm 70 years old. <laughs> so we laughed about that. But I said, 56. And he, be- he, he broke out in laughter, just, just a real belly laugh of him. Uh, and just one of these deep, resonating laughs that just makes you want to laugh, too. And I turned, and for some reason I said, and I don't know why I said this, but I said, do you have your father's laugh? Do you laugh like your dad does? And he grinned and he said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. I do. But I never knew my father until I was 46. So here's a more story. And what had happened in... In, in the course of these stories, you hear how God works in, in human life, and yet this man was broken for lots of things. His, uh, I won't go into that, but, but the change that took place in his life is what the guys in prison are going to hear. And it touched me to hear his story. Your story will touch me too. But one of the things that I've noticed as a pattern throughout uh, those who are sincere and walking is that there's, there's deep change and yet a lot of Christians have to pretend that God has done a deep work. So they know all the answers and yet there's something that's kind of flat in their spirit. And given our culture, uh, this topic I'm going to talk about today is not a common topic. People don't want to hear it. They don't even talk about it. You don't, I mean, when was the last time you heard repentance? brought up in any conversation that you had. Just think about how many weeks, months, years ago. And yet this is 
crucial <clears throat> at the uh, core of the Christian message. And so we're going to look at this. And what I want to deal, uh, share with you is some, some things that are going to make you stimu stimulate your thinking. And as I do so, ask the Lord to really give you a sensitivity to his spirit. I, I mentioned about a lot of the guys in prison. They go through things, and I hear things, and I, I see God at work there. But this is a story about a robber who, well, let me just tell you the story. There was a robber who went into an elderly woman's home. And uh, she was <clears throat> at church, and when she came home, she found the robber in her house. And then she didn't know what to do, so she quoted scripture, Acts 2.38. And, and she says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the... In the name of Jesus, so that your sins may be forgiven. And the burglar stopped dead in his tracks. Didn't move. And the woman called the police, and the police came and arrested the guy right there. And curious about this, the police said, Why, why did you stay? Why, I mean, why didn't you run? He said, she was just quoting scripture. You didn't. Scripture? I thought she said she had an axe and two thirty-eights. <laughs> I had to get that one in. That was good. <laughs> uh, Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer would write in The Cost of Discipleship how grace has become cheap, well-worn. We use it all the time. But the goal that we've been working on is to think about how we as Christians become more intimately involved with Christ. We've been talking about the peace of God and the God of peace. We've been talking about these notions of God and how the Holy Spirit works to help us be born again, to be regenerated. And, and something, about come, something comes alive in a Christian that doesn't take place in somebody who doesn't have faith. This is, this is the whole process of transformation. It's regeneration, it's being reborn from above. And so we've been thinking of these themes, and this is just another step in that direction. So I want you to think about this notion uh, about repentance in light of this constant journey that we're on. But before I get into this, there's some preliminary um, points I want to make. One is that when you come, when you look at this uh, seven steps of repentance, um, I want to say that if you have a mindset of an engineer <laughs> and you want to know step one, step two, step three, step four, if you do these steps, it, it, we're in a Western mindset that we think that we can figure out the system, do the system, and we have a Western mind, rationalistic, logic, uh, cause effect that if I do this, I'll get that. And that uh, formulaic Christian um, mindset is not uh, what we're going to talk about. Because it's not what you do that changes you. Because if you could bring about that change, you don't need the Holy Spirit. If the efforts of bringing about <clears throat> cultural change depends upon human effort, you don't need the gospel. So I'm not talking about here are seven things. So don't hear these as seven things that you need to do to get new life in Christ. It's not that, because these things are not a step-by-step. -step. It's kind of a, uh, an overlapping process, and so I'm not going to be that defined by it. 
But the second thing I want to say to you is this, is uh, if I give you this model, uh, I want you to keep thinking that this is not a mechanical model. This is not a performance model. This is a relational model. And so as you go into these things, you have to understand that, that what we're talking about is something that God has done for us, and we respond in a relationship. So this transformation is a series of constant responses to God, obedience to God, faith in God, decisions to follow, whatever words you would use. In other words, it's one big yes to God and a lot of little uh-huhs along the way. And so as you hear this, um, we want you to think about the fact, uh, the third thing is, real change is hard. Deep, deep change is very difficult, complex in many ways. And it's something that you can't touch or explain because it is the mystery of how the Holy Spirit works. And so it really is rooted and grounded in what you understand the good news to be. And so we're going to get into this because it's, one, exciting, intriguing, and understand what repentance is all about. The big word for repentance, about a year ago I taught this word, metanoia. Meta meaning overarching, general, super, universal, big, big picture. But noia is mind. And these are the notions how you think about what the Christian life is all about and what life is all about. Or, but it's, it's a mindset. It's a frame of our attitude in which, by which we approach any circumstances. And so this fundamental change in character, and I mentioned last week when you're talking about conversion, can a leopard change its spots? Well, no, but in Christians, we understand that the change that takes place inside is not just the external change, it's the internal change that happens. And I mentioned again, this is a famous passage. If you haven't memorized this passage, 2 Corinthians 3.18, I love this passage. And we all with who with unveiled faces, transparent, vulnerable, humble, unveiled faces, as we contemplate and reflect on and look at the Lord Jesus. That alone is part of the mystery of like, you begin to see something, you begin to see Jesus. You begin to look outward. You don't, you don't, you don't have the BBS syndrome. You know what the BBS syndrome is? Some of you do. It's the belly button syndrome. It's like, oh, I got five pounds of lint in my belly button. It's always a self-centered <laughs> focus. But the BBS syndrome misses Christ all the time. But notice that phrase. It says, we are being transformed. That you should not be the same person you were six months ago. You should not be the same person you were a year ago. There's got to be some progress or movement, which Paul would say, this is the labor until Christ is formed in you. I really want you to grow in glory and grace and goodness, and just like Christ is. But it's ever increasing. So there's new things that are coming, but it comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Well, with that, let me jump into these seven steps. And here they are. I'm going to tell you what they are. There's one I'll give you up front and we'll go back through them. One, there's an awareness of our sin, which is a word that's almost erased from our vernacular. Uh, there's an agreement 
uh, we're going to look at the, what takes place when people talk about sin. There's an acknowledgement of the damage. And repentance involves this sense of there's harm. And I recognize what that is. But not only is it I've done the damage, but I regret. There is a regret factor that I begin to see that wounds at my hand leave me wounded and stuck in sin and pain and regret. And we'll go on, we'll look at, well, how does Christ, being aligned with Christ, getting back restored relationship with Christ, that changes everything in our attitudes. But as we go back into that, then we find, surprisingly, that there's an ache. There's an ache for rightness, for justice. And there's amend. There's, there's a restitution. There's action involved. And all these things have to take place that when you fall in love with the Lord and you have an adoration, a devotion, you're, you're, there's an earnestness, a sincerity, that once you begin to see God in your life, you, you can't stay the same. And that's a wonderful thing. So let me go back through this. And so uh, you can take notes on this. And if you hear this again, I wish uh, uh, memorize these and just so you have photographic memory. So awareness of sin. Now, the first thing I want to say is you've heard this passage many times, I'm sure. And I'd never noticed this until I read it this time. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent... Forgive them. And even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you and saying, I repent, you must forgive them. You know that passage. Two things there. If, if, if. If, if, if. Uh, see those three ifs? Those are easy to skip over. It doesn't mean they will. It just says if they do. But if this guy comes to you and says, oh, I really, I'm sorry, I repent. And does it 70 times. Uh, you know the story, what Jesus said to do. Well, you can't uh, just forgive him once. It's, uh, let's see, how many times? 70 times 7. So you got 490 times. Now what does that say to you about this guy who comes back to you 490 times? He doesn't want to repent. And I never thought about that. It's, it's that the requirement for us as Christians is to be gracious with those who are unable to repent. To accept that which is unacceptable. To be able to be gracious to that which is really dead and evil and wicked and hurtful. That's amazing teaching. He says, you give grace. Well, we'll get into this. We can't do that without the Holy Spirit. But here we are. It's a pseudo-repentance. It's a pseudo-repentance. And it's a kind of repentance that says, oh yeah, well, you know, mistakes are made. You know, my bad, you know. Uh, but it's really not a sorry that means sorrow, sorry. It's a, okay, time to stop the conversation. Let's move on here. Uh, let's go along, scoot along. But it's, it's really a, a defensive mode to keep people at a distance. Enough is enough, and you draw a line, and don't go any further. And let me tell you, you have a line drawn. And the Holy Spirit wants to move that line down, 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 down. It's a defensive position. We call it an apology. 
I apologize. Remember when Socrates was going to be killed for drink the poison? Plato wrote about that, and he says, when he gave his apology, it wasn't a sorrow. It was a defense, an argument that he was in the right. And so the word apology means a defense. So don't blame me. I got my reasons. It's not an explanation of how that philosopher admitted his transgressions. So you can have people apologize and not repent. And so you have these words coming to you. And so this is an interesting thing. When, when Paul, uh, not Paul, when uh, Hosea, and this is what we read, and this is a great evangelical uh, doctrine. I want you to go back to Hosea 6.1 for a minute. And, and doggone it, I, I think it's really um, hallmark that really misled our theology. <laughs> Uh, in the sense that they take these passages and put them on the calendars, and we agree with them because we see beautiful pictures and words. But listen to the words. And here's what you got to hear. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, and he will bind up our wounds. Any disagreement with that? Everybody agree with that? That sounds like great theology. It, well, it is good theology as far as that goes, but it's not the theology that you say, it's the attitude with which you say it. And so he goes on to say, after two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will restore us. That's the resurrection. You can't argue with this, um, that we may live in his presence. Oh man, you can't get closer than that, can you? Well, let us acknowledge him, and let us press on to know the Lord. Good words. They're right there on the calendar. I can see them. As surely as the sun rises, and there's that sunset. <laughs> and uh, he will appear and he will come to us like the winter rains and the spring rains that water the earth. Now, is there anything wrong with those three verses? This was right in the middle of the book of Hosea. We studied this in God of Grilled Cheese. But one of the things it says there is it doesn't say in those passages anything about God. This is the projected belief system, the notions that here's what I think God is, and they say all these religious words that even are evangelical or biblical. We would agree with those. But there's something missing, something really missing, because if you notice, what is God's response? And mark this if you have your Bible, Hosea 6. When I read this the first time, I thought, whoa. What is God's response? What do you think God would respond to that? Well, that's, well, come on in. That's fine. I'll, I'll heal you. I'll do it. Mm -mm. He says this. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Oh, come on, Ephraim. Is that the best you can do? No, I don't take that. It's, it's not enough. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What do you mean it's not enough? I'm going to cut you into pieces. Well, this isn't the notion that I have of God. I thought if we just kind of get along and this is a transactional analysis, I agree with you, you're going to let me go on my way. And blah, blah, blah. I'm going to cut you. 
I'm going to slice out those things that you're thinking with my word. I killed you with the words of my mouth that my judgments will go forth like the sun. Your judgment is not like my judgment. But I said the right things, didn't I? Nope. Because I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I don't want your religious education. I don't want your service. I don't want your platitudes. But what was missing in this confession, religious and spiritual as it was, there's no repentance. There's no mention of sin at all. And therefore, at the end of the book, God continues to, at the second part of the book, God continues to take down Hosea into the pit of Israel's sin. You're, Israel, you're mixed with the nations. You're like a cake half turned. You, you really don't understand. And at the end of the passage, at chapter 14, return, which is the word for repent, return, Israel, to the Lord your God, because your sins, and you notice right up front, your sins have been your downfall. And he says, take words with you and say, Return to the Lord and say to him, forgive us of our sins. That wasn't in the first part. They didn't ask for forgiveness. They started this religious thing, but they didn't ask for forgiveness. And no forgiveness means no repentance. Say to him, forgive us all our sins and receive us gracious. That wasn't in there. That we may offer up the fruit of our lips of real worship. Assyria can't save us. We will not mount up war horses. We will never again say our God. There's a repentance. There's a change of attitude. It's not going to be about my effort, my, my notions, my opinions, what our hands have made. For in you the fatherless finds compassion. Wow. Repent then and turn to God, is what Peter picks up. And turn to God that your sins may be wiped out. Now, washed and wiped out, cleansed is part of this thing that if I don't have an acknowledgement and awareness of my sins, I will have no awareness of the washing of the Holy Spirit and the blood of Christ and all those things that really come. If I just start, I don't admit. I don't, I'm not even aware. My bad. So the first part is to be an awareness, have this awareness of sin. But the second part is coming to that place where you have confession. Now, confession is not saying, you know, here's your apology. I did it. Con means with. Fest means to say. Like a professor, he professes. And confess, you, you say with, you say forward. But the idea of fess up, speak up. But confess means what you speak up is in agreement with it, somebody else. It's not just your independence saying what you believe, because that's not a relationship. Here, and John says, again, notice First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, if, 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 there's that if again. It's conditional. It means that there has to be somebody listening to your confession, and there's going to be a response. It's conditional on hearing the other side of the story. It's conditional if it's in agreement with the facts. It's conditional in seeing things from another perspective. 
And you've heard this again. Another passage, very familiar. If your brother and sister sins, go and point out their fault. If it's just between the two of you. But if they will not listen, if they will not listen, if they will not listen, to confess doesn't mean to repent. It could be an argument. They will not listen. Take one or two other. Why? To establish the facts. You're not saying the same thing. For Pete's sake, you're, 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 in, you're in an argument. Therefore, you've got to bring in relationships and so, so that every matter may be established. And without the truth, without the witnesses, you're just locked into arguing your own uh, position. They are not interested in fellowship. They're not interested in repentance. And there's resistance. And that's why confession is conditional. If, and it says something interesting, Matthew 18. He says, if they still refuse. That's interesting. If they're, they're not going to agree with you because they've got an agenda. Tell it to the church. And if they refuse again to listen to the church... Treat them as a pagan. Well, what do you do to pagans? You do this. 70 times 7. They don't want to repent, so give them grace. So you start all over and you give the guy grace again because he's a pagan. Okay, let's move on. David would say that one, if you understand that, that you're in awareness of your sin, there's an agreement in the confession. I say the same thing that God says is sin. And then you come to this point of something takes place on the inside. When David said it this way, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. And it's David with David. David meeting the other side, the dark side of David. Against you and you only have I sinned and I've done what is evil in your sight. For you are right in your verdict and you're justified when you judge Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time that my mother conceived me. And when David was in that place, he was saying exactly what God had been saying all along. That through Adam, we all have that nature that something's missing on the inside, something's wrong. And when David got a hold of that, or better said than when it got a hold of David, then David repented. It was genuine repentance. It begins with that clear understanding that there's wrong done. There's evil done. And you face that damage by others. It's confession backed by the truth and then it's confession that deals with this reality of shame. And now you're into a whole different world. Confession accompanied by brokenness and sorrow. This is... This is what Paul would write about in 2 Corinthians with the pagan people who did not know much about the Spirit. They thought they did, but they didn't reflect it in the relationship with Paul, so Paul had to write them. You guys don't understand that godly sorrow, if it's really from the Spirit of God, it brings repentance. So if there's no sorrow... There's no awareness, there's no acknowledgement, there's no confession, there's no agreement. There's not going to be any change. Because this godly sorrow leads to salvation. And leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow leaves you stuck in the regrets that you've got. 
It's an amazing thing. Paul would say, see what godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. See, one of the things we, in our notions about forgiveness is it's really negative because it does deal with all that negative. But see the positive side of repentance. If we were not fallen creatures, if we didn't have the hang-ups and the junk and the false notions that we have, we would be quick to repent. They would have said, I consider my ways and I, I turn my feet to thy testimonies. I hasten and I did not delay to keep thy commandments. And that's a mark of a godly man, a godly woman. There's a responsiveness because you know that what is right and what you want and what you long for, this isn't going to get to you, give, get you there. So there's resistance and no repentance, but here there's repentance and no resistance. It's an amazing thing. And so once you acknowledge the fact that there's positive things, but it has to do with what you have to understand is that there is an acknowledgement of the damage done. Damage to your own soul, damage to the souls of others. Remember Peter when he denied Christ three times? He felt that in his soul three times. And he, God came back to heal him three times. Not Judas. Judas didn't come back. Therefore, there wasn't repentance on his part. But there's real damage. But you understand this, that even if you're in the position of shame and regret, that doesn't mean you will repent. There's something about sin that will trap us, and we get used to living in a certain way that we just say, well, that's the way it is. And we rationalize it. The awareness of sin, agreement, this confession, acknowledgement of the damage. I, I acknowledge I regret. I hate, hate the fact I did that. But regrets are just feelings. Regrets are the emotional state of feeling. I, and you're face to face with things that you can't change. And you can't change the past. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. I love that. With those who have contrite spirit, he dwells. And he saves those who are crushed. The Lord knows how to minister to us deeply in the heart. Psalm 147.3, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up the wound. Broken people are not necessarily at the point of repentance. They're just broken until the Holy Spirit touches and heals. So Psalm 34, 18, 34, 7 to 18. And so the righteous cry, and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and they save as such as be of a contrite spirit. This is not the way of the world. This is not the way of politicians. They're going to fight you every step of the way. But when the mark of the believer is repentance, you know that the Holy Spirit is at work. Why? Because we know something that the world doesn't know. And I love this. I just love this. We do not have a high priest 
who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who's been tempted in every way that we have been, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. What does that say? What does that really say? It says this, Jesus knows my sin. Jesus knows my shame. Jesus knows my fear. Jesus knows my resistance. Jesus knows everything that's blocking me from coming to him, and he knows exactly what I need to do. If I don't have this vertical relationship with Jesus, I will not know that he accepts me with love, that he gives me forgiveness, and he says, go and sin no more. There is no repentance without Christ there. But he knows my sin. And notice what Paul would say, that when Jesus touches a broken man, a broken woman, he says, do you show contempt for the riches of this kindness? Well, some people do. They don't want anything to do with the church. But forbearance and patience, God is forbearing, God is patient. Not realizing, not underline this next sentence, it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. If you don't have the kindness of God, and you've got some stern father, some stern pastor, some, you got to do this, you got to do it's not kind. But Paul said it was the kindness that he met of Christ when he was on the Damascus Road. God could have killed Paul, but he was merciful. And Paul writes, it's the kindness of God. We're not very kind in our sin. We're not kind when people sin against us. And therefore, the regret <clears throat> that we have is we don't know Christ that well. We don't know that Christ knows my sin and died for my sin. And yet, we said last week, if anyone is in Christ, old things pass away. The regret, the the resistance, all those notions we have. But new things have come. When I'm aligned with Christ, I have new life in Christ. It's not about me any longer. But the, we, we know it's something that the Holy Spirit does himself. He regenerates that. And so it's the regeneration that leads to conversion. It's the re kindness that leads to repentance. And it's by the washing of regeneration and, and the renewing, the transformation that he does. Now, one of the things that's really interesting <clears throat> is that with the presence of the Holy Spirit, what takes place on the inside is this. You get a clean conscience. And the clean conscience, what, what the writer of Hebrews says, that there is an evil conscience that's not going to be truthful, it's not going to be confessing. It's not going to come to repentance. It's going to continue to argue and apologize and say, my bad, my bad, and blame you for it, maybe. But knowing that the washing of Christ clears our conscience. And so in Hebrews 9 and in Hebrews 11, these two passages talk about this. And so it says, that we are to be reminded that if you leave Christ, your faith will go shipwrecked because of a, a, a bad conscience. Your consciousness and faith, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, 
but only ruins the hearer. Remind them about these things and then command them to stop fighting over words because it's these words that lead us into this conflict and the conflict leads us into that shipwrecked relationship. But to have a clear conscience, meaning this, there's no one that can point a finger at you. No one that can point a finger at you and say, you have done me wrong and you didn't deal with it. And I've got a case against you. A clear conscience says, I've been forgiven. I'm repenting and I'm coming back to make it right. And things that were wrong in my life because of God's work in my life, I'm going to acknowledge everything and I'm going to make it right. And therefore, a clear conscience moves into that change. Say, I used to do this, but now I'm going to be doing this. I seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness because I am a new man. I want to do what's right. I don't want to do what's wrong. And as C.S. Lewis said, you can't go back. You can't undo the wrong. But you can change it from that point on. And you can start where you are and you can change the ending. It doesn't have to be continuing wrong, 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 wrong. Because of this. And if you don't believe in the power of the gospel to change the inside of man, then you're kind of like Hosea saying just nice words. But the reality is, if you're broken and touched by the Spirit and healed by the wounds and the promises of forgiveness, you're not the same. And therefore, you're free to forgive other people <clears throat> if you're aligned with Christ. And therefore, there's this ache on the inside, this ache for justice. I want what is right. I don't want to do what is wrong, dishonorable, displeasing. I want what's right. God, give me a clean heart. Clear my conscience and create in me that clean heart, David would pray. And with that, I will make amends. I will go back and things that were wrong. If you borrowed your, lawn, your neighbor's lawnmower and you ran it over a root and you broke it, you go buy a new lawnmower. You, if you've said words that you've really hurt, cut deep, you go back to those relationships. You keep short accounts because you want to keep a clear conscience. You want to keep clean relationships because you want, you long. It's, it's brand new. That might not have been there if you haven't taken the first several steps. But the last part is your focus is now on the king. And you have an earnestness. You have an earnestness that you want his righteousness. And, and though you were, you were previously walking in a way that was not honoring to God, but you have the Spirit of God coming in and touching you. And you have this as assistance, this divine assistance that we talked about, that we with unveiled face, as we behold him, we, we change. And this is, what, this is what's so great about this. And so when Paul would say, see what godly sorrow has produced, if you, if you understand that if in repentance you have an awareness, let me get my notes here. Yeah, here it is. If you have an awareness of your sinfulness and your selfishness, and that shifts to be sensitivity. The awareness of self becomes awareness of other people. If you're in agreement and harmony with the Lord, 
it becomes personal freedom. Freedom. Because you're, you're taken out of this kingdom into that kingdom. If you have an appreciation and, and you acknowledge the damage, you realize that there's mercy and grace at a very deep level that will set you free. If you realize that you've, once, you, once you see that damage that you've done, there is a humility that comes about that produces a sorrow. And that's what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for those are my people. That's the kingdom of God. If we are knowing the forgiveness and we're aligned with Christ, we are affirmed and God has touched us, we're grounded in the gospel, we are healed and our soul is restored. If we understand that we're able to forgive, we're able to forgive and do what's right, that's not a natural thing to the natural man. It's a supernatural thing that comes upon you and me when God says, do this. Take words and go confess your sins. Take words and I will heal you. But take the right words with the right attitude. And the last one is, once you begin to realize it's the Holy Spirit that's doing all this, you have, you have a desire for the Lord that just wasn't there. And if you don't have these things of repentance going on, you are playing games with religion. And the Holy Spirit is quenched. So church, as you think about this wonderful thing that Jesus would say, you've got to be born from above. Well, we all cry out. We're not there. It's complex. It's not just a formula. We can't just pretend. Either God is touching us or he's not. Either we're growing in grace or he's not. Either we love him or we don't. There's no if and ends or buts. Christ knows us right where we are. But for us as the Christians, those who are called by God, we are set apart and we can sing a new song. <sighs> if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. These are the new things, good things. You love people, you love God, you love others, you love yourself better because of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good news? It's, it's a foundational truth that we just don't hear this very often. I don't want to sin. I really want to love Christ. So Lord, help us with that. Let's pray. Lord, we agree with you that you are the light of the world. And we walk with you as you are in the light. We have fellowship with one another. We see light as you see things in the light. But we just thank you that the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sins. Thank you for our cleansed conscience. And Lord, if there's business that needs to be done with you, if there's unresolved issues, Lord, would you meet us and wash us and touch us? Would you fill us with your spirit and give us that kind of growth that we would be people who would say, I love you, Lord, and, and mean it sincerely. So, Lord, take these words, move us along the road of discipleship, and help us grow in love with you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen.